Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Conversations, most would agree, are best had in person. Yet, our recent bout with COVID has shown that sometimes technology is necessary to keep that conversation flowing. When restrictions lifted several months back, I was quick to return to in-person meetings on location. It was nice while it lasted. In recent days, Singapore made a call to reimpose rules to keep us at home, out of the office, and away from crowds. It's probably the right decision, but I confess the thought of going backward instead of forward is mildly distressing. I have the feeling I'm not alone. Nothing replaces face-to-face engagements. Warm up to a conversation with a coffee or a meal, and the entire tone and tempo changes. It's noticeable, or at least I think it is. Find a place that puts a person in a calm and positive frame of mind, and you can literally hear the difference. I'd like to think that the conversation you're about to hear captures that feeling. My discussion with Razine Sally took place after a sumptuous Thai meal at the Jim Thompson restaurant just off Tanglin Road here in Singapore. There are many beautiful places to dine in the city, but this restaurant is among my favorite. High ceilings, exotic decor, and did I mention the food? It's really something special. It all made for a great conversation. Razine is associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. He's also a mix of Welsh and Sri Lankan. It was in part the thing that drew him back to his country of origin several years ago. That trip and subsequent others resulted in a book, Return to Sri Lanka, Travels in a Paradoxical Island. And so it was we joined up to talk about those paradoxes, the evolution of Sri Lanka, and the example it sets or not for other emerging economies. Before bringing this conversation to you, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy, while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about, and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with Razine. Razine Sally, thank you so much for taking time. My pleasure, Steve. Great to be with you. We're going to talk Sri Lanka today. I'd like to get your take on what's at the heart of your lifelong fascination with Sri Lanka. Well, um, of course, it starts with being born in Sri Lanka. I am Colombo born and bred, Colombo being the capital city. Uh, My father is Sri Lankan. My mother is British. Uh, So I grew up half-half, half-insider, half-outsider. So that's, and and my childhood was uh, Sri Lanka in the 1970s. So that's how it all started. Um, What accounts for an enduring fascination with Sri Lanka. I suppose that's a realization I've come to just in the last 10 to 15 years of traveling around the country in order to write a book about the country. Uh, So that fascination has become much richer and more layered than it ever was in my childhood. Um, How would I sum it up for starters? That's a difficult one. I think I'd say Firstly, the geography of the island, the landscapes are just so incredibly stunning in their variety. For a a relatively 
small to mid-sized island. Sri Lanka is about the size of Ireland, not bigger. Population 21 million. The variety of coastlines, interior landscapes, uh, from one place to the other, within short distances of each other, is just mind-blowing. I could spend the rest of my life discovering new nooks and crannies off the beaten track uh, on the back roads of Sri Lanka. You add another layer of uh, many different religions, many different cultures, with different ways of dress and food, outlooks. Um, that, I think, adds to the fascination. So it's putting all of that together that makes Sri Lanka an endlessly fascinating country for me. And it's mine. I grew up there. Yeah. It's, a, it's magical. Uh, my, uh, <clears throat> my first trip there was done illegally in 1983, where I crossed from Madras, where I was studying, um, at night, in a small boat in order to enter the eastern part and uh, try to understand the Tamil situation there. Um, but it was magical, like you say, just you know, coming onto those shores and, and, and the be natural beauty of it. But it's a complicated place as well. I mean, even within the Ramanyana, um, it, it, it was the, the island is the kingdom of Ravana, the demon god. Uh, the demon king and and so you know and, and in Indian lore also talks about Ceylon as that place across the way the yeah. other in so many ways so it's 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 a paradox and 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 I guess I'd like to unpack that a little bit the paradox of Sri Lanka you started with a bit of the history Steve so let's let me start there as well um, there's there's a quote from Arthur C Clarke who was probably the most famous expat in Sri Lanka in the second half of the 20th century, uh, which I, I reproduce in a long paragraph in my book. He says that you know, the difference between Sri Lanka and say some of the Pacific Isles is that in addition to all the, the lush tropical vegetation and the exotic locals and the tourist charm, it's got over 2,500 years of very complicated, multi-layered history. And of course, much of that is wound up with India, particularly South India. So the fascinating complications start there. They didn't start yesterday or the day before yesterday. They go back at least 2,500 years. And you can trace it all the way back mythologically to the Ramayana, uh, to Rama, stepping over those stones with his uh, Hanuman, his monkey general, leading his army of monkeys across to Lanka to rescue Rama's wife Sita from the clutches of the Lankan demon king uh, Ravana. Um, and it gets more complicated from there. Yes, it does. Um, you talk then about paradoxes. And the subtitle of my book is um, uh, uh, has the word has the word paradox uh, has the word paradox in it? Uh, Travels in a paradoxical island is the subtitle. And even as a child growing up, I couldn't figure out why. And this is perhaps the central modern paradox of Sri Lanka. If you go there as an outsider, say as a tourist, you see this stunningly landscaped land. You see very warm, welcoming people. 
it induces feelings of warmness, of warmth, gentleness, and softness in you. And yet, you have these inter-Nisine ethnic conflicts. You had 25 years of civil war. You had bloodbaths, which were on TV screens around the world. How do you reconcile the two? And that was, if anything, the central question I started with as I traveled around Sri Lanka, coming back as, as an adult, as a 40-something. And I tried to unpack that question you know, in my travels and, and in this book. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I suppose I, 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 I'd give you a bit of a multi-layered answer. Um, that paradox shows, its, shows itself in so many ways. Historically, uh, kings of ancient Buddhist kingdoms married Tamil Hindu brides from South India who continued to practice Hinduism. A lot of Hinduism was over the centuries incorporated into the ritualistic practice of Buddhism, including the worship of Hindu gods. So if you go around temples in Sri Lanka today, as you perhaps did on that early visit in the early 80s, if you go to a Buddhist temple, in the middle of the Buddhist temple will be a shrine devoted to a Hindu god. And uh, local worshippers think nothing of worshipping the Buddha and that Hindu god at the same time. It's very syncretic. Uh, there were minority trading castes, mainly from South India, mainly Tamil-speaking, who were very much welcomed at Sinhala Buddhist courts. Brahmin priests were imported from South India to officiate uh, doing religious rites. Um, and there were waves of migration from what is now Tamil Nadu and Kerala, particularly, who, you know, within three or four generations, went from being Hindu to Buddhist, went from being Tamil to Sinhala. Uh, Sinhala Sri Lanka's leading Sinhala Buddhist political dynasties have Tamil origins from South India. So there's, there's all of that. Um, but, but then what went wrong? I mean, if you have all this, this cultural assimilation yeah. and this uh, tolerance, which pervaded for so long, when did it begin to turn and how did it become so bloody? There were tensions and contradictions even going back 1,000 to 2,000 years. So there were Tamil invasions. There were Tamil usurpers of Sinhala thrones. But Buddhism continued alongside Hinduism. People worshipped idols and gods from the two religions. There was a kind of coexistence right the way through. I think um, one thing that went seriously wrong was the beginning of the Western encounter. Not so much perhaps, or less so with the Dutch and the British, but starting with the Portuguese, because the Portuguese who occupied at least parts of Sri Lanka, mainly the coastal provinces for 150 years, more or less, came not only to trade, to monopolize the spice trade in particular, they also came for souls. So like they did elsewhere, they massacred local Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims and desecrated their places of worship um, because they wanted to turn everybody Roman Catholic in their way. Um, I think the main wrong turns have taken place since independence, that's to say after 1948. Uh, ethnic 
tensions were always there, religious tensions were always there, but they were kept a lid on by the British. But with independence, the Sinhala Buddhist majority, of course, acquired a near monopoly of political power. And instead of doing a Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore and establishing essentially a religion of meritocracy and trying to keep things or nurture things as multiculturally, multi-religiously, multi-ethnically as possible. About 10 years after independence, successive governments pursued a Sinhala majoritarian ethnic chauvinist agenda. It started with promoting the Sinhala language at the expense of Tamil and English and promoting Buddhism at the expense of the other religions, uh, of essentially pretty blunt, crude, affirmative action programs for the Sinhala Buddhist majority at the expense of the Tamil minority in particular. And once that started, in a sense, the genie had been let out of the bottle and it just got worse and worse. Um, Sinhala Buddhist extremism became worse and worse with successive governments. There was inevitably a reaction from the Tamil side. So extremist elements within the Tamil community began to be ascendant from the 1970s. And then that all erupted in a civil war in 1983, which lasted 25 years. And now we are, let's see, it's 12 years after the end of that civil war. And there hasn't really been genuine reconciliation. If anything, that Sinhala Buddhist majoritarian agenda has been entrenched, particularly under the rule of the Rajapaksa family. And the minorities have, to a large extent, retreated into their ethno-religious solitudes, to use a Canadian term. So you see that with the Tamil minority. Uh, I see it, I mean, I come from the Muslim minority. My father is Sri Lankan Muslim. I was brought up as a Muslim you know, in the Muslim community. And the way Islam has developed in Sri Lanka is very different to the Islam I experienced in my childhood. There's much more of a militant tendency. There's more fundamentalist is Islam imported from Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states. Um, as a reaction to the Sinhalese dominance? I think partly, but that's not the whole answer. Um, I mean, it gets very complicated here. Um, a lot of Sri Lankan Muslims went to work in the Gulf starting from the late 70s, early 80s. They came back with a different form of Islam in their heads. Preachers were trained in, in mosques and religious institutes, again came back with a different form of Islam, often spewing fire and brimstone. And a lot of Saudi and Gulf Foundation money has gone into building mosques and madrasas in Sri Lanka. So the result of all that, it's not a majoritarian phenomenon yet, but among a significant minority of Muslims, particularly in the younger generations, they have in their mind and in their daily lives a different form of Islam to the kind of South Asian Islam that I grew up with in the, 19, in the 1970s. It's um, more rigid, it's more judgmental, 
Its cultural reference points are from the Middle East, but not from South India. Bearing in mind that, I mean, again, put it, to put this in historical context, Islam came to the South Asian coastlines, the South Indian coastlines, and to Sri Lanka by trade and not by the sword because of Arab traders who came with the monsoon winds, just as they came to parts of Southeast Asia. Very different trajectory of Islam to the way it came to North India by the sword with the Mughal and previous Islamic invasions. So the result of that in Sri Lanka and on the Coromandel and the Malabar coast was, if anything, quite a syncretic form of Islam, importing a lot of local influences, not least through intermarriage. Tamil is the main language of the vast majority of Muslims in Sri Lanka, not Sinhalese, not English. And this new fundamentalist strain of Islam in Sri Lanka, as elsewhere, is very much a reaction against that. They want to get rid of these so-called impurities. Their reference point is probably the Arabia or a mythical version of Arabia around the time of the Prophet and his immediate descendants. Mm. Um, they're very judgmental about other communities. They take their distance from other communities. But above all, they're judgmental of other Muslims who they think are impure or even apostate. So, and this is 10% of the population. Yeah. So when a cell of Islamic fundamentalists then blows up churches and hotels in the middle of Colombo on Easter Sunday two years ago, there's bound to be a backlash against the community as a whole, which there has been in Sri Lanka. So this is, this is percolating. And I guess I wonder to what degree have these social and cultural and religious aspects informed the economy of Sri Lanka? Why is it set up the way it is today? And, and can any of this be undone without resurrecting some of those social cultural issues? Well, towards the end of my book, um, which tries to cover so many different things because it's a travel memoir. It's not in the first instance a book of uh, a policy. It's not an academic book or a policy treatise. But you know, having been trained as a social scientist, being a professor in a public policy school and also a, uh, with the previous government a policy advisor in Sri Lanka, there's quite a bit of politics and current affairs in the book. And towards the end of the book I paint three scenarios for Sri Lanka's future. Um, the first scenario is, is a positive one of what a Sri Lankan Sri Lanka would look like were it to achieve its potential. It would be genuinely multicultural, you know, perhaps with a Singapore as a kind of model, uh, rather than one where there's a majoritarian singular Buddhist agenda that crowds out minority agendas. It would be a liberal democracy. It would have a freeish market economy. Um, and it would have good relations uh, in foreign policy with the United States, with India, with Europe, with other parts of the West, as well as with, 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 with China. Pipe dream? At the moment, it looks like a pipe dream, yes. Um, it's sort of utopian. Uh, maybe we'll come back to what things might have to change to actually inch in, inch to in that direction. The reality 
of the present looking into the future I think is much bleaker because we have an entrenched government and wider political elite that's Singhala Buddhist pursuing that agenda that's exclusive in favor of Singhala Buddhism but against the minorities not just Tamils but now Muslims um, the politics is illiberal it's a kind of illiberal democracy you can think of analogs like Putin's Russia uh, and maybe Modi's India is going in that direction maybe we'll come to that later um, China is first friend in foreign policy and China has ever increasing influence in Sri Lanka at the expense of the West and India how does it affect the economy um, it means the economy performs well below its potential it's a crony capitalist crony socialist type of economy everything depends on political connections so it's politically very well connected singular Buddhist businessmen who do best they tend to run inefficient businesses that are built on rents that are defended from competition the consumer gets screwed so the prices of staple goods in Sri Lanka is exorbitantly high there are some goods like chicken which are more expensive in Sri Lanka than they are in a supermarket in Singapore bearing in mind Sri Lankans earn a fraction of what the average Singaporean earns um, if even if you come from the minorities and you have an inside link to the political elite you can also do well but what it means of course is that it's an economy that is where competition is largely absent and that's why the consumer gets screwed I mean, I know so many competent aspiring Sri Lankas uh, Sri Lankans who don't come from already rich families or families with strong political connections but if they were free to achieve those aspirations if there were genuine competitions if, if the doors were genuinely open there are Sri Lankans out there you know who would set up who would have startups now we've seen that happening in garments in Sri Lanka so when the economy was opened up from the late 70s about 15 years before India opened up the first industry to really pop up and do well around the world was garments because entrepreneurs stepped up to the plate uh, with all those restrictions that had previously be existed taken away uh, and so you have a few world-beating companies so, so are those the Sinhalese well-placed businessmen no. or others no. I mean, this this is where the the story gets culturally very interesting indeed and has hardly been written about the best companies in Sri Lanka the ones that are genuinely entrepreneurial that sell well in world markets starting with the first with the big three garments companies are run by tiny members of tiny Indian minority trading costs they're Sindhis, Parsis, Mormons who generally came to Sri Lanka under the British with DNA entrepreneurial DNA in the blood probably going back centuries if not thousands of years um, and they flourished their numbers are tiny Boras also come to mind but they run the best companies they're the most professional they keep their heads well below the political parapet because they are tiny minorities they have excellent contacts around the world so a classic example probably Sri Lanka's best 
run company is the number one company in garments, MAS, uh, whose main buyer is Victoria's Secret. And the Amelian family that owns and runs uh, MAS is a Sindhi family, originally probably from Gujarat. Um, and they're quite exceptional by Sri Lankan standards because they've earned their millions and they have the best training programs and are probably the most desirable company in Sri Lanka to work for. Not because they know this or that politician and have this or that politician in their pocket. But it's because they've discovered a market niche and followed it through to entrepreneurial success. The tragedy of Sri Lanka is that those stories are still exceptional. And if you look at Sri Lanka's export base, it's what's traditional, which is from the British times, tea, rubber and coconut. Plus, in the last 40 years or so, garments. But the tragedy of it is that Sri Lanka hasn't diversified that export base as so many East European, uh, um, East Asian countries have from areas like garments, footwear, leather goods, which are labor intensive, where you can employ lots of cheap labor to consumer electronics and office equipment, more complicated things with higher value added and with that extra generation of employment. So if there's an example of a sector that's able to um, break through and beat the odds and demonstrate that Sri Lanka can be the base for a global organization, a global industry, why hasn't the government latched onto that, created incentives, or tried to encourage others to do something in order to put Sri Lanka on the map? Of course, every government has that kind of rhetoric. You know, we want to repeat the garment story in other areas. But, but, but you're saying it's not happening. It's not happening. Yeah. It's not happening. That's the tragedy. Uh, the potential is there for it to happen in any number of services sectors in particular. I mean, when I was advising the government under the last government, one area I was promoting was uh, shipping. Uh, uh, there's a little local oligopoly uh, that uh, essentially corners the market in shipping agencies. So this is just one little example, but it's representative. If you're, say, a Maersk or one of these big shipping lines, you can't establish a fully owned agency in, in Colombo Port. You have to team up with a local who has majority, uh, majority shareholding, which of course means that the market remains very small. Uh, but if that ownership restriction were to go, and say a Maersk could have 100% ownership and full management, there is every prospect of a company like Maersk transferring its hub operation for South Asia from Bombay Port to Colombo Port, which runs much better. And of course, then other things might start to happen. You'd have, you know, uh, you have links upstream to all sorts of logistics operations. Colombo is halfway between Dubai and Singapore. Um, so you could probably, you know, with a shipping core, you could probably build a whole logistics ecosystem, mainly services industries, that wouldn't be about catering to the Sri Lankan market or even basic transshipment operations to India, but which would be a genuine logistics hub, the only one or the major one, halfway between Colombo, between Singapore and Dubai, 
So, so is it because the Sinhalese business elite have their hands so so tightly clasped around the neck of government, they can't break that logjam? They're not able to yeah. get the permissions? I mean, how, how much, who's, who's in power here? Well, is it the government or is it the, the you know, the, 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 the millionaires, billionaires in Sri Lanka who own the, have the concessions and the rights to operate businesses there? I think it's, it's a tight-knit coalition of the two. And that's exactly what happened with this particular pet project. The finance minister actually announced it in his first budget. I was one of his advisors. And that evening, after he'd made the announcement in Parliament, uh, the leading members of this local shipping agents cartel went to see the president to tell the president that this was a really bad idea and that he should veto his own finance minister, which he did. So it never got off the ground. Yeah. Um, so you, you have, I mean, it's a small place. It's a small elite in Colombo. You have a business elite who are very comfortable sitting uh, uh, on, on their piles of, of rents. They have little competition. They have politicians in their pockets. Doesn't matter which party. Uh, and they want to keep things as they are. Now, but that isn't the only answer. I, I think what, what you also have is a very parochial, navel-gazing political elite generally badly educated, generally not exposed much to the wider world, um, who are old-style politicians who need funding from these business people to fund their campaigns, uh, who have patronage rights. They don't really think in terms of policy. They think in terms of patronage, in terms of corruption, in terms of cronyism, at best in terms of projects, but not in terms of policy. In that sense, Sri Lanka, I think, has gone backwards over the decades. And then in the middle of this, you have this highly poisonous ethno-religious agenda with Sinhala Buddhism at the heart of it. So the religion has become highly politicized. It's not just about having connections with among politicians and business people. It's also senior monks who are involved. Uh, and then Amidst all of this, you have all these a Byzantine thicket of regulations uh, where you have to go to any number of different ministries for your permissions, for your licenses, which is bad enough for locals, but put yourself in the position of a foreign investor. The only serious foreign investors I know in Sri Lanka are generally people who come there on holiday, fallen in love, maybe bought a second home started up a business and just do it for the love of it because they love Sri Lanka. But say you're a, a serious foreign investor looking for a return. I mean, I hate to say this, but one of the last places that I would end up in is probably Sri Lanka. You know, the irony of this is that they're sailing against the tide of changes in the international capitalist community, right? You have all of these different types of aspects which speak to the transparency of corporations and the private sector and yet Sri Lanka seems to be pulling that shroud tighter and tighter across its shoulders trying to stave off what is inevitably going to you know a wave which is going to break across that country is it not or can they do it can they hold out it would require a, a new elite to emerge in business to have real creative destruction, to use the Schumpeterian analogy. But at root, what it requires 
is a change, a makeover of institutions in Sri Lanka. That's the biggest blockage. Uh, if anything, it's worse because it's a small country with a small ruling elite, which means the institutions are entrenched and the barriers to entry for outsiders who want to come, disrupt and create are very high. So if you're, say, an outsider, if you're, say, if you're born from you know, the other side of the tracks or even in a privileged family and you want to really change politics in Sri Lanka and make a positive difference, even do that in business. Um, it's very, very difficult because above all in politics, you know, the odds are that you're going to bang your head against a brick wall for years and decades and you won't see any return at the end of it. So what do you do instead? You might go into business or you, often the default option, find a way to emigrate and achieve your aspirations in Canada, the US, Australia or wherever. You started the discussion with the three scenarios. The best case, I can now imagine the worst case based on this. What's the middle case? What, where is the, is there that catalyst opportunity with the garment export sector which could inspire others to at least gradually uh, nip away and chip away at what's uh, I, I standing? Don't, I don't, um, you know, in, 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 in my book, I, I have these three scenarios. So what the scenario in the middle is a kind of drift. Uh, I think the conclusion I reached while traveling around Sri Lanka and writing this book is that that middle scenario of drift is not tenable in the long term. It's not stable. It's an inherently unstable country. And that scenario will either tend towards the nasty kind of relapse I talked about or go in the other direction. Of course, I would like to see it go in the other direction of a much better future for Sri Lanka. That requires a remaking of the institutions, which looks unlikely to happen at the moment. So the risk is that drift turns into something worse happening down the line. Mm. To what degree is the Sri Lanka example being replicated across other developing markets, uh, particularly in this part of the world? Um, I think the answer is more than we would like to think or hope. Um, Let's talk about the neighbor to the north. The neighbor to the north, the giant neighbor to the north. I mean, when I was writing this book on Sri Lanka, I, I was thinking pretty much about Sri Lanka. I wasn't thinking about parallels with India or elsewhere. But since the book came out, um, and given what's been happening in India in the last maybe two years in particular, uh, those thoughts have come more to the fore. Now, uh, let's say... The negative things that have happened in Sri Lanka are perhaps more likely to happen in other smallish Asian countries with smallish elites where maybe in an election with a populist reaction, some populist gains power and then he monopolizes, he or she, it's usually a he, monopolizes power. The crony capitalists come with it. There's some kind of divisive ethnic or religious agenda and maybe China's hovering in the background hoping to take advantage. And hey presto, you have a Sri Lanka-like situation. What I think has surprised me and many other observers is that this now seems to be happening in India, the giant neighbor to the north. Now, in the past, I thought that India was to a large extent immune from these kinds of things happening precisely because of its hugeness and complexity. 
ethnically, religiously, geographically, and otherwise. Mrs. Gandhi tried it with the emergency in the 1970s, and it failed. So her attempt to turn India into you know, a, a kind of illiberal democracy failed after two years. Now, the BJP's attempt under Narendra Modi seems to have that much more power and staying power. Um, and I hope it doesn't last. I hope that hugeness and diversity of India will resurrect itself to correct what's happening at the moment. But we have so many parallels with Sri Lanka. We have a strong man taking over at the center uh, with a strong clique around him who are single-minded about monopolizing political power and if they can get away with it, turning India into an illiberal democracy, but not keeping it as the kind of democracy which existed since independence. The economy is increasingly being cartelized with a small number of big business houses who have very good connections with the Prime Minister, uh, starting with the Adanis and uh, the Ambanis. Um, dominating India's commanding heights. So less competition within and less of that creative destruction also coming from foreign direct investment. We of course have a majoritarian, ethnically, religiously divisive agenda with Hindutva, with the other being Muslims. You have parallels there. Yeah, daunting parallels yeah. across all fronts, eh? Um, and here we're talking about a big you know, perhaps the biggest, most complex country in the world. So if it can happen in India, then, you know, perhaps it can happen in some other medium to large sized Asian countries as well. I mean, think of Indonesia, you know, where, where might Indonesia be, you know, given some of these factors in five or 10 years, 10 years time. You know, can we be assured that Indonesia will, you know, develop as a you know, reasonably pluralistic democracy with a moderate form of Islam into the medium or long-term future. I, I suspect that many of the countries, the, the Four Tigers and, and other developing markets that are um, leaning towards uh, liberal democracy in this part of the world have been balanced by the fact that they've been external facing. So not, uh, you know, import substitution or other policies which have kept them, um, uh, if you say, just closed to the rest of the world. As long as that continues to occur, you'd think there's a chance that at least there's other influences being brought to bear. How, however, though, in, in the post-COVID world, there's this talk of decoupling to some degree, reducing globalization and actually getting back to more self-reliance, which would seem to then feed in on what Sri Lanka is now going through by virtue of its own methods. Yeah. Now, in, in, in the positive scenario of my book, uh, I say very clearly that economic liberalization um, in Sri Lanka shouldn't be seen in isolation, but that having much more of a market economy with a state not being obliterated, but doing different things better than it does now, that that's very much part of a package which includes liberal democracy 
and a Sri Lankan Sri Lanka as opposed to a Singhala Buddhist Sri Lanka. Uh, and being friendly with countries around the world, not just with China. It's all part of the package. Uh, because if you, I mean, and this was, I think, the hope of many liberals in Sri Lanka back in the 1980s and 90s, that with the progressive opening up of the economy, there would be a diversification of exports, foreign investment would come in, that would bring in uh, better jobs, uh, the levels of education would grow up, life chances would improve all around. And with all of that happening at the same time, it would inject more maturity into politics and with a growing pie, also uh, create more incentives for people to live peacefully across ethnic and religious lines, as opposed to creating incentives to move in the other direction. What we've had instead is, on the economic front, particularly in the last 15 years, rising levels of protectionism, of import substitution, of the cronyism that goes with it, of making life more difficult for foreign investors. Um, that's, of course, reduced job opportunities. Uh, uh, it's played into growth rates being pretty stagnant and Sri Lanka relying on borrowing uh, instead of foreign investment. Um, and all of that means, of course, that I say, of course, although you know, this is a link that's often not made enough, it means that the majority of the population continue to be undereducated, underskilled, underemployed. Some of them whose main ambition is just to emigrate. Um, and of course, it gives them the time and the opportunity to blame this on the other in quotation marks. And the other could be Muslim fundamentalists or Tamil secessionists uh, or who knows what. Yeah. Razin, it could not be more clear. It's like developing, rural, uh, developing markets of the world beware of the Sri Lankan syndrome. <laughs> would you would you say I mean this is this is really it's it's not it's a dire situation but it's not impossible it's uh, not to turn around but it does sound like there's there's so many different layers of challenge that have been stacked against the people of Sri Lanka because of the system. Yeah, I, I think I mean to broaden out uh, uh, hugely from from little Sri Lanka, I think there's always a danger of. Um, being too too complacent and I think we went through that phase in the 90s and before the global financial crisis and a lot of people thought that liberalization globalization ever rising levels of prosperity and material well-being for ever larger sections of the population was just written linearly into the indefinite future and of course, the lessons of history w weren't learnt because there was a similar phase before the First World War. And then look what happened. And of course, since the global financial crisis, we've seen lots of things going wrong in different parts of the world. And that's gone several layers further with, with the pandemic. So I, I think, you know, wherever we are, and we can always point to many different hotspots in Asia, we should beware of um, populism in politics with a kind of illiberal democracy agenda, uh, of uh, politicizing 
ethnicity and religion in order to divide um, of command and control economics um, uh, and of being too close to China. Excellent points. Um, Razin, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, there's more to discuss. We'll be back. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for a great conversation. That was my conversation with Razin Sally, Associate Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. You may be wondering how a podcast primarily focused on corporate purpose in Asia found its way to the tropical island nation of Sri Lanka. Circuitously, you might say, or perhaps serendipity best describes it. A word defined as, and I quote, an unplanned or fortunate discovery. Serendipity, it just so happens, is derived from the root word serendip, which, by chance, is the original name of Ceylon, or modern-day Sri Lanka. What I discovered when we arrived at the conversation is that Sri Lanka stands out as a warning to all small developing nations. Small can be good, particularly when it comes to testing out new ideas. It can also become a petri dish for subversive forces or special interests with intent to seize control and assert power. In other words, small countries are places where the best and worst examples of nationhood are made apparent. Sri Lanka, unfortunately, would appear to fall into the latter category. It's tragic, really, particularly when you consider that at one time this island nation stood out as a shining example of what a developing market was capable of. There are two paths, and Sri Lanka chose the easy one. From the early 60s onward, political elitism took over. That gave rise to a two-tiered economy, and that in turn limited upward mobility for anyone unwilling or unable to buy or bribe their way to the top. There was a better choice, of course. Granted, it came with some risk, but had energy been placed on building institutions instead of favoritism, the outcome might have been very different. Cronyism has become Sri Lanka's curse, says Razin. Once cast, it's hard to dispel. But let's bring this back full circle. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the duty and responsibility of business. In the context of corporate purpose, we look at ways in which companies manage their employees, safeguard the planet, treat their partners, and engage with customers. What about government? Do our changing times call for a recalibration of the public-private relationship? I think so. In the new parlance of stakeholder capitalism, right relationship with government is just, if not more, important. If in the past it was about plying politicians with funding to garner concessions, what's the new paradigm? For homegrown conglomerates, it means transitioning away from a ruler-vassal model and moving more towards a true partnership approach, where the needs of the country and its populace are considered on their own merit and not on the basis of what is owed. This necessarily means greater levels of transparency and public accountability, possible in places like Singapore, less so in a country like Sri Lanka. It all comes down to this. If proactive efforts aren't made by companies to make these adjustments, some combination of shareholder demand and public expectation will expose favoritism and hamper change. New forces are in play to determine environmental, social, and governance accountability. Publicly listed companies, and multinationals in particular, are on the cutting edge of these changes. The real question is, what Asia-born and government-backed businesses will be the first to follow? Reconstituting their historical relationship with their government sponsors is a first and essential step. 
Whether they like it or not, eyes and ears are on corporate behavior like never before, all aided and abetted by smartphones, big data, and social media. There are increasingly fewer places for companies to hide. Better, some say, to get out in front of this new reality by cleaning up government relations, reframing the public-private relationship, and thinking of the corporation as a force for good rather than a vehicle for nepotism. That brings an end to this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share this podcast and others with friends and colleagues. We're nearly 180 episodes in, and all our conversations are available free of charge. All you need do is subscribe by searching for Inside Asia wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening.